Good morning. It is good to gather, isn't it? It's good to be with you all. As uh, Billy said earlier, my name is Mike. I serve as one of the pastors at Grace DC downtown campus. And uh, it's always good uh, to see the work of God um, in different parts of even in our city and to witness firsthand uh, the work that he is doing and the witness that you are uh, in, this, uh, in this part of uh, D.C. So uh, we're grateful for you all, and uh, we continue to pray for all the churches in the Presbytery that together we would succeed in the calling that God has given us uh, to be a compelling witness for the gospel. Will you join me uh, in reading uh, Psalm 23 with me? Psalm 23 is a psalm that uh, many of you are familiar with, one that I turn to often uh, because sometimes based on circumstance, whether personal or global, it's easy to feel that I have been abandoned, that I've been forgotten. And uh, I turn to Psalm 23 uh, in order to remember uh, that I am not forgotten, that I have not abandoned, but I have a shepherd. And so do you all a shepherd who loves and cares for us deeply. And uh, he meets us where we, are, where we need him the most. And so I pray that as we read the text and get into the word, that these words will be a comfort, a balm for your soul this morning. Psalm 23, this is what David writes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Join me as we pray. Father, we come now and bow our hearts before you. We recognize our need for you, Christ, our shepherd, More than we actually know, we need to be fed by you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us hungry for your word, for your truth, and that you would anchor us in your gospel even more today, so that like the tree planted by streams of living water, we might bear fruit in all seasons to your glory and for the good of others, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is a scene in the movie Jerry Maguire where Jerry Maguire, played by Tom Cruise, comes looking for his wife. And he says, our company had a very big night, a very, very big night. But it wasn't complete, wasn't nearly close to being in the same vicinity as complete because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice or laugh about it with you. I miss my wife. I love you. You complete me. You remember that scene? This romantic idea that someone or something 
could complete you to meet all your needs and satisfy your every longing is a lie. When you place such expectations on people and things, you will be disappointed. And the reason is spelled out for us in the opening pages of the Bible. Ever since Adam and Eve removed God from his rightful place, we've been left to fill the void ourselves. And no matter how good, true, and beautiful someone or something is, God cannot be replaced. David, the author of Psalm 23, he knew this. He was, at the time, a king. And not just any king, but he was the king of a great nation. Israel, at its economic strength and military power, yet he turns to the Lord through this song to remind himself the source of everything that is good, true, and beautiful. Now, there are several things that we're going to eventually talk about, but let me highlight a few things before we dive in. David says this in the banner verse in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This verse itself could be a sermon. There's so much to unpack here. And I know I'm not going to do justice, but let me highlight several things. Notice that David does not say, because of my power, my wealth, and my fame, I shall not want. Rather, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He is the source of everything I need. All these things that I have, whether personal, material, relational, these things cannot add up because God cannot be replaced. He goes on to say, I, he, he goes on to say, I shall not lack or want, meaning David is saying God is enough. I don't have to have everything. I have God, and that is enough. A.W. Tozer, an author and preacher from a generation ago, once wrote, The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. God is enough. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that often. Because often, I feel like I'm caught in a rat race. And we all keep score, don't we? We peek over the fence to see how we measure where we fall. And we feel like we need to play catch up. Or we feel really good about the fact that we're ahead. But here David says, nah, you have the Lord. And that's all you need. The key that unlocks everything that we're going to talk about this morning is this little word, my. David doesn't say the Lord is the shepherd. In one sense, he is the great shepherd. But David says the Lord is my shepherd. It is in our relationship with him that we find Christ to be everything he promised to be. Now, one more thing before we move on. David says the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the one who reigns, the one who provides everything I need for life and for godliness, that same Lord is my shepherd. The great one is also the humble one. And Jesus later on would pick up on this and declare himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And David is just getting started. 
In the rest of the psalm, David paints two very distinct pictures of God to give us comfort, hope, and there I say joy at all times. And no matter what COVID-19 looks like for you, because we all experience it differently, there is hope, there's a word of comfort, and there's joy as we turn to the Lord. So let's take a look at these two pictures together. First, the shepherd. Perhaps as David looks back at all the ways God cared for him, he couldn't help but to remember his younger days as a shepherd boy. In verses 2 and 4, David recounts all the ways that God shepherded him. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides, uh, besides still waters. Because none of us are shepherds, at least I don't think any of us are, it's easy to miss the nuance of this metaphor, but there are three things that I want to highlight real quickly. What does it mean that Jesus, our Lord, is our shepherd? First, he provides. He provides for us. Just as a shepherd provides for his sheep, our Lord, our shepherd, provides us with everything we need for life and for godliness. Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, Apostle Paul would say it this way, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? From daily bread to daily grace, he fills our lives with good things, including this community that we can gather together to worship, to remember the gospel, and to remind ourselves of the mission of engaging this city and the world in winsome ways is a beautiful thing. And I hope we don't take things for granted, but that we eagerly participate in the work that God has called us to, be, to belong first and foremost, but also to engage and to serve the gospel in this way. He provides us with everything we need. Not only that, he protects. Shepherd protects his sheep. Even as a young boy, David rescued his sheep from lions and bears, according to 1 Samuel chapter 17. In the same way, God protects us from all sorts of things, including our enemies. Remember, just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not true. We're engaged in spiritual warfare, as Paul says, and if we could get a peek into that reality, I think our lives might look very different. I know I would pray a lot more. I know I'd be rooted in the word a lot more. God protects us because he is, after all, our strong tower, our shield in times of need. Not only does God protect us from the enemies out there who seek to derail us from our faith, but he protects us actually from ourselves too. I praise God for that. Because left alone, I know my own appetites and I know my own desires. Sin is deceitful. Heart is deceitful. And I'm capable of all sorts of things if not for the grace of God. He protects me from indulging in sin that leads to death and destruction, and I praise God for that. He also accommodates. 
He not only provides and protects, but he accommodates for us. Sheep are afraid of many things, including running water. And that's for a good reason. They don't know how to swim. And even if they did, their fur would soak up so much water that they would just go straight to the bottom. So a shepherd would create a pool of standing water for sheep to drink from. This is a beautiful picture, isn't it? That God does not despise our weakness. But he accommodates for us. He is gentle with us. He knows us better than ourselves. And he comes in that low place, in that difficult place, and meets us. Not with a report card to see how well we've been doing. No, he meets us with the gospel. And he invites us to come and believe and trust and lean fully into the finished work. He is our shepherd, the one who is with us, who provides for us, who protects us, and who accommodates for our needs. Verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness. When we think of the word righteousness, we usually think in terms of legal or moral perfection. And this certainly is true in one sense. In Jewish versions of the Bible, the Old Testament, the phrase righteous acts of God is translated as kindness, abundant benevolences, and gracious deliverance. And one Hebrew scholar points out that the word righteousness refers to covenantal faithfulness of God. Yes, in one sense, it speaks to God's moral standard, moral purity, and that he has called us to such and has separated us from the world to be holy, righteous, blameless. But that is not the full meaning of this word. And so when David prays in Psalm 35, verse 24, Judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and do not, let me rejoice, uh, do not let them rejoice over me. He is not saying, God, see if I measure up, because I think I can. You know, I've been pretty good. Look at all the times I read your word this week. I even prayed. I like extra five minutes. Go ahead, see if I measure up. That is not what David is saying at all. Rather, he is saying, look upon me with covenant mercy, because I don't measure up. Because I know I have not been good enough. And I'm not righteous. But you are. And it's that very righteousness of God that allows him to look upon us with mercy. In other words, when David says in verse 3, God leads us in the paths of righteousness, he is saying, in one sense, that God does grow us into the moral character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God for that. That it's not up to us and how hard we can work to become like Christ, but that he is the one who is doing that, and he is faithful, and he will finish that work. But David is also saying that when we don't measure up, when we fail, when we want to go away even, that he is kind, gracious, and merciful to us. Sometimes he leads us to green pastures and still waters. But other times he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's read verse 4 together. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All of us, we all feel the pain of living in a broken world from time to time. But for some of us, it's a place of a long-term residence. Perhaps some of you struggle with ongoing physical, emotional, mental illness that have no simple solutions, and you have learned to journey with it. It's an unwanted companion, but it's become part of your story. Here's the good news, friends. For all of us in Christ, the good news is that our God, our Lord, inhabits the valleys of death with us. In fact, he is the only one who has gone to the valley of death so that you and I never have to. Notice, we only go through the shadow of the valley of death because he himself has gone to the valley of death itself. Charles Spurgeon once said, when there is a shadow, there must be light. I love that. When there is a shadow, there must be light. Meaning, the valley of shadow of death is not our destination. Glory is. Jesus leads us through the valley of the shadow of death to take us to glory. It's a pit stop. Sometimes we need a little break, right? When we're going on long road trips. Fueled up, get a drink, maybe a cup of coffee, stretch your legs, and you head on. In the same way, the Lord leads us to the valleys, to difficult places. But that's not our final destination. Glory and home is. But why does Jesus lead us through the valleys? Why? I think... He does so to draw us closer to him. Isn't it true, perhaps in your own life or from the testimonies of others, that in the midst of our suffering, hardship, and trial, that we are made aware of his presence, that we grow deeper in our faith in his promise? I know that's been the case for me. It's in the valleys that I learn to depend on him more that his promises become all the more sweet, that he refines me and my character and my hope in the gospel, and that my home is not this world, but it's in a different place, a place of glory that he will bring when he returns. So for God's people, as you think about your life, no matter where you are today, whether you find yourself in the valley or not, whether you find yourself in a place of need or not, Christ our Lord is your shepherd. He is with you. And all you have to do is to turn to him and believe again. And all the things that he promises, you can live into, that you can experience. And I pray that that would be your story in the coming days and weeks as you turn to our Lord who has never left you in the first place, who is always with you and and deals graciously with you. The second picture that David paints is that of a host. 
Let's read verse 5 again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The picture here is that of an extravagant banquet. But this is not just any celebration, like a birthday party or maybe celebrating your retirement. It's a victory celebration honoring the champion. Now, David knows that he is not worthy of such honor. And we read about that in his story. For starters, there's that incident with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. And then there is a not-so-great relationship with his kids and his kids with each other. And how can we forget that actually one of his kids attempted to overthrow him? And exiled him. Not exactly a highlight reel, is it? So what's going on? How is David crowned with such honor and glory? David enjoys the richness of the host's goodness because the host has secured the victory and now gives credit where credit is not due. And this is what grace is all about. And when we humble ourselves, and put our faith in Christ, he gives us his perfect righteousness in exchange for our mess and brokenness. And upon his return, Christ will say to all of you, well done, my good and faithful servant, but who is good but God alone? No one. Yet Christ crown us with honor and glory. And I think at that moment, all of us, realizing how imperfect we are, how, fall, how short we fall, will be moved to utter humility and gratitude that leads us to worship like never before. And I imagine we would join with the multitude in singing Psalm 115, verse 1, as we lay our crowns at the feet of the one who alone is good. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And there in the midst of this feast is a cup that is overflowing with joy. The host pours joy into our hearts. And how can he do that? Because on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of wrath, and he drank it empty. The cup, empty cup of wrath itself is more than enough reason for us to celebrate, don't you think? I remember growing up, my mom would be really hard on my brother and I. Uh, she had high expectations of us, whether it was academic and otherwise. And when we failed to meet her expectations, we got in trouble. And I always appreciated it when she started with my brother first, because then that wrath tank would sort of like be half empty. And by the time she came to me, because she was just exhausted physically, there'd be very little left. And I could see this happening just in the volume of her anger, right? And I always celebrated the fact that my brother got the brunt end, and now I get the whatever remained of her wrath. And I sort of see it this way as I read Psalm 23. Before we get even to the cup of joy, we see the cup that is not there because Jesus dealt with that. 
The cup of wrath is no more because Jesus drank it all. And we don't have to be afraid of our God. Rather, we can call him our Father and run to this table because he pulls a seat for all of us and says, you belong here. And then he begins to pour joy into that cup. And he doesn't waste it. It's not just almost full. I mean, it is running all over. It's making a mess. Almost to a point where I'm like, you can stop now. Like, I get it. But you know God. He doesn't just do anything half-hearted. He fills it, pours it. It's running all over. And he says, I'm not done. And this is a joy that you and I can live into as God's people. Not just that one day when Jesus returns, but even now. I love how David puts it. This feast is going on in the presence of his enemies. And we can experience joy even in the midst of the enemies that seek to derail our faith too. You see, we all live in that tension, don't we? Already not yet. But the promise is there. It's guaranteed. We have the Holy Spirit in us. 100% down payment. That day is coming. But in the meantime, we wrestle with the tension. We struggle with the enemies that really plan to throw us off course. To lure us away from from focusing on the gospel. But even then... As we turn to him, we can experience this joy. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Michael Buble once sang the song, I Want to Go Home. I don't know why, but, uh, you know, we Christians love to have retreats in these like really scary places that seem like the opening scene of a horror movie, right? This tucked away, middle of nowhere, no electricity, no running water. One time I was driving to one of those uh, retreat centers when I lost uh, the internet. Uh, there was no signal and uh, the sun was getting low and I just kept winding uh, through what seemed like endless uh, cascade of mountains. And uh, I thought, wow, famous last words. Where is this retreat center? And uh, at that moment, I turned the corner and everything opened up. The, cl- the sun was still out there. You could see the last little bit uh, of this beautiful colored sky, the cascading mountains, and my Pandora kicks back in. And Michael Bublé is singing the song, I Want to Go Home. I wanted to so badly make a U-turn and just go back home to be with my kids and my wife. As crazy as my house is, it's home. I have four kids, 13, 11, 9, 7. For parents, you know what life looks like in that stage. I have now an official teenager, and psychological warfare has begun on the home front Uh, It used to be that it was just a physical thing where we were exhausted from caring for our kids all throughout the night. But now it's uh, we really have to up our game. But it's still home. 
from toys and books that litter the floor to the sound of my boys fighting over just about everything, including trash, and even the constant funny smell in the bathroom. I don't understand how you teach boys to aim, but just get it in the middle there, not on the floor. You think it's easy, but apparently it's not. It's still home. It's where I belong. It's where I'm known. It's where I'm loved. And this idea of home appeals to all of us a bit more, especially in this city, because living in Washington can feel like hugging a parade, don't you think? Just when you get to know someone, they're packing up and moving. And we say goodbye to so many dear friends. With all the transients, it's hard to feel rooted. I do. Every year, I think about 30% of my congregate changes. And uh, about this time, if we were to gather together, I would stand and uh, I'd look out at the congregation. I'd be like, who are these people? Am I the right church? I think our longing for home ultimately is our longing for Eden, a place made for us, a true home. And no matter how hard we try to rebuild our version of Eden through work and physical beauty and so on, we will never get there. We live with ache and tension in our hearts. But praise God, that home is being prepared even now. That's what Jesus said. And it's going to be much better than Eden. And we have two guides along the way. Two guides that will be with us through all the highs and lows, through every valley we go through. And David talks about them here in verse 6. Goodness and mercy. They will not just follow me at a distance, but they will pursue me. And when, my, when I find myself doubting, goodness of God will overwhelm me, melt my callous heart, and woo me back to faith. And when I fail, when I stumble, when I fall, and when I want to sit out of the race, the mercy of God will pursue me. It will pick me back up, dust off everything that I I need to get rid of, and help me to believe and continue this race. And these two companions will be with us to the very end. We'll close with this thought. A pastor friend of mine shared this with me, and I thought it was very insightful, and I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. The Hebrew word for mercy sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for want or lack. And he basically says, when you look at this psalm altogether, David is trying to communicate something to us. And that message simply is this. God's mercy is the cure for our lack. And I hope you all, as God's people, as you take stock of where you are today, regardless of what today looks like, you will find in Christ a shepherd and a host who knows and celebrates and cares for you deeply. And I pray that that would give you hope for today and the many days to come. 
Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come and we bow our hearts in gratitude for all that you have done and all that you are. Jesus, we can count on everything that we talked about today to be true because you are our shepherd even today. You are the great host who delights in serving us, celebrating us. So thank you, Lord. Would you give us faith to believe, faith to latch on to these promises, and help us to live out of them, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.